Have you ever wondered what happened to the legendary Chuck Norris? I recently saw a health video he made and I was surprised. He's in his 80s and still seems to have his energy and health. He says he's even stronger, has more stamina, and plenty of energy left over for his grandkids since making one simple health change that helps his digestion and nutrition. He says he still feels like he's in his 50s. His wife made the same change and she's never felt better. She says she feels 10 years younger and she has energy all day. Many of us do not include the fruits, vegetables, and other herbs that increase health and energy in our own diets. Chuck Norris made a special video that explains how he incorporated these things with one simple product. You can watch it by going to mymorningkick.com forward slash Harris. It may change your approach to your own health. Once again, that's mymorningkick.com forward slash Harris. Hey everyone, we're live on the Conversations That Matter podcast today. It's a snowy day where I am. I am actually watching the snow out my window right now come down. It's actually debatable. Is it snow or is it sleet? It kind of goes back and forth because we're right at that uh, around, I think, 30 degrees or so. So it kind of like jumps. Um, But uh, it's not the kind of day you want to go out in. I'll put it that way. If it's a little colder, it's not as bad. If it's warmer, it's rain, and obviously it's not as bad. But um, it's right when it's on the edge that you really don't want to go out. So uh, actually, I was supposed to meet up with a patron today for lunch, and we had to cancel because of it. So um, playing it safe. I used to not uh, have the luxury of doing that because I drove for a living for so many years. That was part of my job, at least. And so it, it didn't matter what the conditions were, generally. I mean, there was, it was very rare. Uh, that uh, I would be uh, allowed to not go into work. And so I'm grateful to be able to sit here and do this podcast today instead and uh, get a couple other things done. Some some writing, some... Um, oh, by the way, I should say, if you uh, are subscribed to Truth Script Tuesday, uh, that's going to be later this evening. I'm going to put that out there as well. So uh, you get two in one day. Uh, that's how it goes. But you can't get two in one day unless you're subscribed. So you got to go to uh, whether that's iTunes or Spotify or wherever you subscribe to audio podcasts, or if it's on YouTube, you got to go to the YouTube channel for Truth Script and subscribe there. Um, yeah, thank you, Elijah. Elijah says, congrats on uh, the baby and uh, appreciate the prayers. Thank you. Yes, it, it, it's been difficult a little bit the last few months for my family, uh, but that definitely gives us uh, some hope and so we're appreciative of that. Um, just a few comments before I start. This is going to be a long one, I think, because uh, I, I want to get into really MLK's social and political views more than anything else. His legacy, why I'm going to make an argument for why I don't think we should revere him the way that it seems like typically in the last few decades, he's been revered, even in conservative circles. And um and, and I've done this kind of thing before in a way. I've, I've exposed some of the things that MLK did, moral failings, bad theology, that kind of thing. I'm not going to do that as much. I really want to get into the substance of his views. I think that's where the battle is right now, to be honest. And I think the uh, narrative is shifting, both on the left and on the right, but more so, I think, on the right. I think that we are at the precipice of starting to go the other way on MLK uh, and, and actually bringing back some of these critiques of MLK that existed uh, 40, 50 years ago. 
that were put to death after the MLK holiday uh, became mainstream and, and was passed and all of that. Um, but there were senators. I mean, there are people who objected. Jesse Helms was one of them. And uh, he had good reason for it. And, you know, some of it was ties to communism and, and communists and things like this. Um, I'm not going to get into so much those things. There, there's a whole cottage industry on connecting people to Marxists, right? Like Glenn Beck's chalkboard. And I, I'm not going to do that. I'm not saying it's not worthwhile to make connections, but I really want to get into the meat of this. So that's what we're going to do. Uh, a few questions, though, and comments here. Oh, um, uh, Jessica 1993 says Virgil Walker just did a short piece on this on the G3 channel. He also did a deep dive on their just thinking podcast. Fantastic podcast, by the way. And I want to say to uh, Virgil Walker's credit, despite whatever disagreements he has with me <laughs> and uh, whatever disagreements I might have with him about uh, the way he's handled the Christian nationalist stuff. Um, I, I, I did see that piece and I thought that um, it, it, I would probably go further on some things, which you're going to hear in this podcast, but I thought it was good. I thought, and it's, it takes courage. Just so you know, it does take courage to some extent, at least, especially, especially if you are in a, in a black community uh, or, or you come from a, an area that's black to criticize MLK. It's just not really done. It's just not done. And so uh, I, I say credit where credit is due. Um, and I feel bad. I'm sorry, Andrew. Andrew, for $10, asked two questions. And I don't know if my answers are going to be that great. But uh, he said, you've mentioned in several videos that crew went woke. Do you know if Ratio Christie also went that way? If not, I'd rather support them. Um, not to the extent crew did, that's for sure. And I, I, I don't believe so. To be honest, uh, my understanding is they've actually taken measures against social justice and wokeness. Now, I don't know the full extent of those measures. I think People like Neil Shenby and um, oh, I can't remember the name of the organization now. There's an organization that it is on the tip of my tongue. Maybe it'll come to me later, but um, maybe it's the Center for Biblical Unity. I think that's it. I think that that's been their approach more. Um, if I'm not mistaken, they may some some of them don't quote me on it may have used the Thaddeus Williams book as well. I consider all that stuff. I'm, I'm not trying to say all of it's bad or anything, and I, I, I'm not looking at it this like black and white. Uh, I, I would say it is an inadequate critique, though, that you're going to find from from those um, organizations or people for the most part. Uh, it, it doesn't it doesn't really go far enough. And it, it's really coming from a more liberal mindset. That's where the critiques coming from. So but to their credit, they're, they they have done something about it as far as I know. And, and again, I'm, I'm probably going to get I'm probably going to get some emails from people in Ratio Christie saying we're against wokeness. How dare you? I, I just know this because people have sent me stuff, all kinds of stuff. Um, I will say this too, though. I know of crew staff who have gone to Ratio Christie and, and they love it. And they think this is so much better than crew. And at least there's room for me to exist here. And I don't feel like I'm constrained all the time. And, and they're at least taking a whack at the woke stuff. And to that, I say, good job. So if you're going to support one, I would support Ratio Christie over crew, hands down. Um, uh, also, another question for $10 from Andrew. Did you ever do a video on the entire Jay Gresham Machen saga? I'm not sure what that is. Uh, his life? I, I don't know if there's a controversy I'm unaware of. I only have a cursory understanding of the whole thing, but Stonehouse's biography is too long. I have not read Stonehouse's biography of Machen. I've actually never read a biography of Machen. I've read articles about Machen. I've read a lot of primary source stuff. Obviously, his book Christianity and Liberalism. Um, I really like his his speech before Congress on public education. 
and I know I've read some of the critiques from more social justice angles on his apparent, uh, at, at least at some point in his life, I think it was earlier in his life, um, support for racial segregation and education. Um, so I, I don't really know. I, I've addressed that that before in the podcast, and I can't remember all the details of it, but I know um, but you can find it. And by the way, I should say, if you want to find something, you, you can certainly go to YouTube, type in uh, the, the podcast title. But if it's something that isn't in the title or tagged, and it's just a because it was a long podcast, I said something somewhere, there is a tool you can use, and it's called Let's Church, uh, let's.church. And if you go there, there's a whole bunch of shows. They got The Dividing Line, they got... Edi Robles podcast. My podcast is there and you can search the transcripts and it's, it's AI technology, but uh, the, the gentleman who put this together just did it for free. He just wanted people to be able to access information. And so I was a little, at first I was a little reluctant. I'm not going to lie. I was kind of like, I don't know this it's skeptical, a little bit of AI stuff, I guess. But I, I was also just like, do I really want people searching all my transcripts? Cause I talk a lot uh, on this podcast and man, I, I say some stuff sometimes that uh, later on, I think, man, I shouldn't have said it that way, but you know, it's out there. So, uh, so it's a, it's a helpful tool and I'll just apologize if I said something wrong, you know, it's not a big deal. Um, so yeah, go check it out. Uh, you could just type in Machen at let's church. Um, all right. Well, okay. All right. One more thing. <laughs> Cause someone did pay Earl Starbuck for $2, uh, asked about denying the divinity of Christ. We'll, we'll talk about that a little bit today. Yeah. So MLK, uh, did do that. Uh, we're not going to get into detail on that, but m most of that comes from his seminary papers, and and we're not going to get into the plagiarism stuff either. I've all I've also covered that. Even I have the dream speech. Part of that is is plagiarized, um, as far as we know. Uh, the the Christology stuff, though, the, the more oh, I hesitate to say orthodox, but the more orthodox leaning Christians who like MLK will try to defend him and say, well, that was his earlier life, and clearly. Uh, you know, based on little statements like I've come back to the faith of my fathers and things like this, they'll say, well, well, he he's was orthodox by the end of his life, just like us. And I think that's a bunch of baloney, to be honest. Uh, it's just it, it's making an assumption. And I'm, I'm going to show you some things from later in his life that lead me to believe he never changed his views on Christ. OK, uh, we are going to. Yeah, people are putting all kinds of things in the chat about MLK. We're, we're going to shift, though, here. and. Uh, I, I I do have a sponsor. Uh, I should probably I'll just play it now. It's only a minute long. Can I do that? Is that all right? Because I, I really want like stream of consciousness along with the slideshow. Uh, if if you you know want to know more about MLK and the substance of what he believed and how it's being interpreted today, I want this to just be a clear flow. So I'm going to play uh, this advertisement uh, for for farmer um, uh, Bob's biltong, which I think. Uh, is great if you're a meat eater. If you if you like jerky, you'll like this probably even better. It makes you feel good. It's it's very healthy. Um, and then one last thing, I'm gonna put in the uh, comments a link. This is for patrons, but um, it is a link to the slideshow I'm gonna be going over today with primary source quotes from uh, MLK and uh, all kinds of other things. It'll help you follow along if. The font is too small or you just get lost it, it'll show you where we're going so there's the link if you're on facebook or youtube streaming all right so uh here is uh the built on commercial so you, you can tell me whether you think it is cringy or whether you think it's based or, or or mid i mean it might be in between i don't know here we go life is not about the destination but the journey i say it's both sometimes it's a gentle whisper 
and other times a raging river. Life has its hills and valleys. Sometimes we have to jump creeks and scale cliffs, but we have the strength for both. We have a map and we know where the trail leads. Just above the horizon is the glimmer of what comes next, and it's what drives us forward until we reach our final destination. Farmer Bill's Provisions. Lean energy for the unexpected. Save 20% with promo code JOHN20 at FarmerBillsProvisions.com. So apparently I have a problem uh, confusing Bill and Bob. <laughs> Not Farmer Bob. Don't go to Farmer Bob. It's Farmer Bill. Farmer Bill's Provisions. Uh, go to their website. So, and, and you can find it actually pretty easily. Um, I think it's just, yeah, FarmerBillsProvisions.com. FarmerBillsProvisions.com. They got tallow. They got all kinds of things. But their biltong, which is like jerky, uh, is the thing that most people get from them. So check them out. Uh, they're sponsoring the podcast this month, which I appreciate. Uh, all right. Well, let's get into this. Um, I'm going to start with uh, a slideshow and then I'll start taking questions probably in, in maybe half an hour or so midway through this this whole thing. Uh, how is TruthScript streaming this? <laughs> uh, I, I have access to the TruthScript YouTube. I'm usually the one on it. So uh, it tells me my brother probably. I don't know. I think there's probably two or three people that have access. All right. Let's focus now. Um, I want to talk about Martin Luther King Jr. And you might ask, you know, why talk about this the day after MLK Day? There's a specific reason for it. And the reason for it is because I wanted to see what people were saying. And I can't preemptively know what they're going to say. So um, I want to talk about the MLK of the right, of the left, of evangelicalism. It, it, he's a little bit like Abraham Lincoln. He's a symbol that is used by many groups. They want to attach their uh, themselves to MLK to justify whatever cause that they're involved in. In fact, I, I saw not too long ago, you, you had the uh, uh, anti-COVID uh, doctors, the, the frontline uh, doctors, and, and they were quoting MLK all over the place. And, you know, what does that have to do with, with their issue? Well, if you can hitch your your wagon to MLK, then it justifies it morally because he's become really kind of a proto-Christ figure. He's become almost the father of the country. He's more time is devoted to him uh, as far as discussion and teaching and uh, honoring him than George Washington. I mean, it, it even people who don't know any history in public because they've gone through the public education system, they know about MLK, right? And, and they only know, though, a version of MLK. And so there's different versions floating around. And I want to talk about this because I think this is why... We talk, we're going to talk about this anyway. I mean, if, if there weren't versions of MLK being used to justify political things, then uh, would we even be talking about this? Probably not. So the political rights MLK is where I want to start. And you saw yesterday uh, Ron DeSantis, who got uh, third or no, second. I guess it, it, it was kind of close to Nikki Haley, but he did edge out a second in the Iowa caucus, very distant behind Trump. But uh, he posted before the caucus or maybe the day of the time is always right to do what is right. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, and I think this is the way that MLK is often used by people. And I'm not saying Ron DeSantis doesn't know about MLK. I'm sure he knows some things. But 
But people who don't know about MLK or know very little, it's like, well, he's just a good guy, right? Every He just stood for the right thing. So do what's right. Uh, and, and so there's this sort of general MLK that, that's out there that really any side can use, but the right likes to use MLK. Uh, Mike Pence, today we honor Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., an American whose faith and courage moved our nation toward a more perfect union. Dr. King inspired a movement that changed the course of American history, and his example inspires us still today. And you see a lot of this merging of MLK. You saw this in the 1776 Commission, uh, even from the Trump administration, which is supposed to co contradict or compete with the 1619 Project, this merging of MLK with founding documents. And, the, and it's like the founders a line that goes from the founders to Abraham Lincoln to MLK, right? And and it's a sacred line. And of course, I don't buy this at all. I think that uh, that line, if it exists at all, it, the, the connections aren't uh, connections over creating a more perfect union or equality or, you know, the kinds of things that are often assumed about it. It's it's more um, it, it's more of a whatever connection is there is because, you know, they happen to live in the United States and they did political things. It's pretty general. Uh you know, Abraham Lincoln, you could say you could say there's a connection between MLK and Abraham Lincoln, I guess, in a way they both believed in a, a very um, uh, intrusive federal government state action uh, and, and even the um, meddling in social uh, institutions and those kinds of things. Uh, but, but Lincoln's views on race are completely different than MLK. And he wanted to ship the slaves back to Africa. Right. So. There, there's this mythos that exists out there, and the left used to be the ones that touted this stuff, but now the right is touting it more. They're, they're merging, you know, MLK with the founders. Like it's kind of, they're, they're, he, he was carrying on their dream. Christopher Rufo uh, said, if I were, let's say, Secretary of Education, I would launch a civil rights investigation to every Ivy League university's discriminatory DEI and admissions policies, then work with legislators to block all federal funding until they remedy the situation. To attack MLK is short-sighted. We measure our greatest statesmen by their accomplishments within the tragic conditions of history and human nature. Whether it's the founders or Dr. King, a certain degree of idealization is necessary for creating a coherent national narrative. The correct reaction to the left's noxious ideology is not to say we need racialism for the right. It's to say we recognize the realities of race, but aspire to a higher standard, the full expression of natural rights, the subordinates, racial uh, faction to the best of our nation. We're going to get into some of these things today, but I want to say this. You can see a, you can notice a slight shift even in Christopher Russo. He has to acknowledge now. Well, I, you know, I know there's problems with MLK, but look, the, we, we shouldn't attack him, guys. I know there's some problems. We shouldn't attack him. Why shouldn't we attack him? Well, you know, he, he's got some moral flaws, but what he was striving for, and this is generally where conservatives go, what he was striving for in the I Have a Dream speech is this colorblind society. And uh, in the colorblind society, that there, there's no room for any group to uh, try to exert their own preference or dominance or supremacy or, or any of that. We, we don't even see it. Um, and so, uh, this is then also again, merged with, it's a full expression of natural rights. It's, it's a liberal approach. All this is a liberal approach, by the way, um, that these, uh, natural rights that the founders believed in MLK was then applying somehow. And this contradicts the DEI stuff. And, and, and I think, you know, you know, I, I will say that I think that there is some merit to 
pointing out at times, I think it's way overdone, way overdone and, and, and probably to our own detriment. But there is merit to at times pointing out that um, what MLK was doing and what he stood for, at least broadly speaking publicly, because there's again, there's different MLKs, uh, was in contradiction to the DEI policies of today, at least on the surface. Uh, the, the legend of MLK, right, which I don't buy this at all, by the way, I think that MLK would have been for the DEI stuff today. But but I think at least the legend of MLK, which we're kind of led to believe is the full MLK, um, really it, it boils down to the letter from the Birmingham jail and the I have a dream speech. That's all most people know. Uh, you know that MLK uh, would probably not care for the DEI policies, at least in principle, you would think. Right. So I, I get why people do that. I've, I've even made that point before I looked back and I think it was like three or four years ago, I had made a, you know, it was a portion of MLK's, I have a dream speech and interspersed were social justice warriors in Christianity saying things, uh, that contra that seemed to contradict it. For example, MLK talks about, uh, really his pride in the United States. You know, he, he's not down on the pilgrims now in other places he is kind of, <laughs> but, uh, maybe not the pilgrims specifically, but he, he's, uh, he's down on white people throughout history and what they've done. And he sounds like a, you know, a social justice warrior from today, but at least to that speech, he's, he's saying very unifying themes. And, and so then I contradict that. I juxtapose it with things that social justice activists are saying. And, and I think there's some merit there, but again, when you do that too much, what you do is you end up reinforcing MLK as a standard. He's the moral standard. He's the standard by which the nation is going to be judged. by which the country I should say is going to be judged. Uh, so, Given the amount of slides I have, I need to get going here. But but there is a political right MLK. He's used as a symbol by the right. Prager U um, uh, put out a video a few years ago, but they reposted it. So I figured, ah, oh, they reposted it. I'll, I'll put it out there. Uh, he said, um, Jason Riley, in this particular Prager U video, and there's this part of the transcript, King has had no real successor. If black Americans were still faced with legitimate threats to civil rights, such as legal discrimination or voter disenfranchisement, it's likely that leaders of King's caliber would have emerged to carry on the fight. Instead, what we have today are pretenders who have turned the civil rights movement into an industry, if not a racket. King and other black leaders at the time spoke openly about the need for more responsible behavior. The pretenders to King's legacy mostly ignored this advice, preferring instead to keep the onus on whites. Activists who long ago abandoned King's colorblind standard, which was the basis for the landmark civil rights laws enacted in the 1960s, tell young black Americans today that they are victims, first and foremost. Black activists and white progressives stress racism because it serves their own interests, not because it actually improves the station of blacks. So th this is, a, I, I would say, the fairly standard political conservative. It's really a neoconservative kind of view of MLK and that MLK's work was accomplished. That's what you, you see in this. Like his work was done. Uh, black people can vote now. They, we don't have voter disenfranchisement. We don't have the legal discrimination that once existed. We don't have separate drinking fountains anywhere. So his work is done and now there's nothing left to do. And so everyone who's uh, trying to carry on his legacy using his name, they're really frauds. They're just trying to build off of the momentum of, of what he did, but uh, there, there's nothing left to be done. The job has been finished. And that is really the difference between like 1776 commission and 1619 project. That's one of the reasons we need the 1607 project, which is coming out next month, uh, premiering at uh, Callaway Gardens uh, in second week of February. Uh, Abbeville Institute's hosting that. So if, if anyone wants to sign up for that. 
Um, I'll be there. I'll be introducing the documentary. There's a book with it. But anyway, uh, that's that's the the difference between those two things is not that big because the 1619 project is saying there was a promise in America and we've not achieved it. And the 1776 commission is saying there's a promise uh, at the beginning of America at a foundational level that has been achieved. And so MLK, he, he, we achieved it. So we have the equality and there's no need for anything else. Right. No, the, it, and it, 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 it's just a misunderstanding of how the left works, how progressives work, how MLK had he still been alive and what he was doing towards the end of his life would have even worked. Um, Okay, so we have we we have uh, the Civil Rights Act uh, acts, I should say, but we we there, there's always more because look at the economic disparities that exist. I'm okay talked about this all the time, the disparities that exist and the need for all kinds of redistribution and uh, affirmative action programs and all that kind of thing. So it, it's just ignorant of, of who MLK actually was. You had yesterday. Uh, these are just two, I think, good examples of evangelicalism. So you have, um, I would say evangelical left, Daniel Darling, evangelical right, John Root. And by the way, John Root went back, uh, and, and he, I I saw before the podcast, he had deleted this particular tweet. Um, and, uh, it was already in my slideshow though. So this is, this is the view I guess he had yesterday morning, but uh, he got some pushback and he deleted the tweet. I think he's a good man. I, I really do. Um, I mean, like I, I've said things I disagree with too. Um, but I think that he, uh, he, he fine tuned it now. And he said, look, I'm talking about the, I have a dream speech MLK. So, but, but regardless, Daniel Darling said Martin Luther King Jr. Rightly called on America to live up to her founding ideals. There you have it. Uh, he used the language of human dignity drawn from Christianity. He saw the humanity, even of those who opposed him. All right. So that's sort of evangelical left. And then you have evangelical, right? You can't possibly celebrate MLK Jr. Today while supporting BLM incorporated in DEI at the same time. He would be opposed to both, which I don't think he would be at all. But in fact, I think the, the, the road that runs through MLK, that's where it eventually leads. Uh, but uh, but there's some truth in, 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 like I said at the beginning, there's, there's sort of some, some glimmers. There's some pieces in both of these things. And, and um, it's not the full pie. <laughs> they're, they're slices. And that's part of the problem with the way that MLK is appropriated today. Gospel Coalition put out a piece. I would say this is evangelical left. And it said, uh, I'll just read you. It's a prayer. <laughs> it's, a, it's a prayer about, uh, I guess, MLK. Um, uh, let me just read for you the relevant section. Lord Jesus, pondering John's vision of your gathered beloved, loud praising every nation bri- uh, bride, uh, ignites our longings for the day of your return. It's also a great way to remember the work of two Martin Luthers, one from Germany and one from Alabama. What's the basis upon which this imperfect countless multitude will enjoy all the perfections of eternity? Only the gospel of grace that Martin Luther rediscovered. Okay, and then it goes it goes forward and it says Martin Luther King Jr. helped us understand that the purpose and power of your grace isn't just to get us into heaven, but also get heaven into us. So so this is sort of the utopian uh, mindset here that you have MLK coming uh, almost like a prophetic character. He comes and he's going to show the way forward for Christians to get heaven into us, right? It sounds kind of profound, I guess, to certain people. I, I don't know. I don't know if it's that profound, but uh, it it's salvation, the gospel. It's not just getting us to heaven. There's also getting heaven into us. This is immunitizing of the eschaton. Uh, it's it's to it starts off with this vision that John has of every tr- tongue, tribe, and nation, and that's what MLK did. He was giving us that vision of all of these things together. It's going to happen on this earth, when in reality we know that's not true. 
John's vision, now I take a futurist view of revelation, but John's vision is something that that is to occur. And even if you don't take a futurist view of revelation, you're still going to have to wind up with this is in heaven. John's vision is in heaven. It's not on earth. Um, and, and so there, and there are certain things, I mean, we pray that I will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And of course the left takes that now to justify every social program they have. If they can somehow tie it to a heaven reality, there's no hunger in heaven, right? So let's do, uh, you know, anti-poverty programs that, um, with, with the view in mind that we're going to be successful in an ultimate sense when we're not. And so, um, it, it's, it, they'll misappropriate that verse for their own agendas and, uh, try to make it about, you know, some utopian scheme. And I, I see the gospel coalition kind of in that same vein of where they're trying to, um, find these heavenly realities. And, you know, I think, uh, it might've been Stephen Wolf. I want to give credit where credit's due had pointed out that, look, they never do this on marriage. They never say, well, there's no marriage in heaven. Let's not have any marriage here. You know, <laughs> there's certain distinctions between these worlds. But that, that's TGC. Um, you had uh, the American Spectator ran a piece by Paul Kengor, Grove City College. So that's a, I think they're evangelical, if I'm not mistaken, evangelical university. Uh, the Martin Luther King Jr. that liberals hate. And of course, Mark Levin uh, reposted this. And it talks about King, Kim Davis, if people remember Kim Davis, who went to jail because she refused to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples. And she justified what she did partially based on what MLK did. She was a Democrat. And Martin Luther King said, I would agree with St. Augustine that an unjust law is no law at all. Now, what is the difference between the two? How does one determine when a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. To put it in the terms of St. Thomas Aquinas, an unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in eternal law. And so um, th this is also part of the king of the right. The king of the right quotes Augustine because he quoted Augustine in his letters to the Birmingham jail, uh, letters from Birmingham jail. And in that particular work, uh, he, he appeals to this, this understanding of uh, human worth and parallels that to social equality, that, that these things are really one and the same. And so any kind of social inequality must be against human worth. And because it's against human worth, then you apply Augustine's understanding of what a just and unjust law is. And, and in this case, it must be unjust. That, that's the argument there. And of course, I, I would agree with Augustine. I think all Christians would. And I think MLK knew what he was appealing to at a time when the country was much more Christian than it is now. Um, you know, people say the same about Abraham Lincoln, right? Abraham Lincoln, uh, it, there's good evidence to suggest he was probably an atheist, but w whether he was or not, whether he was an atheist, most of that's based on Herndon, his, uh, uh, uh lawyer who worked with him. Um, wh whether he was or he wasn't though, he was certainly not a pious man. There's really no evidence to indicate he was a Christian, but what did he keep using, uh, in his, uh, particular, speeches, biblical themes, because he was at a time when that carried legitimacy. And I think MLK probably did something similar as well. I mean, he's, he's the, the, there's some philosophical stuff here, but you know, we want to zone in on the Augustine, but we want to ignore his appeals to secular philosophers like Hegel uh, or Marx or, or, you know, others. So, uh, so, so this is Paul Kengor yesterday. This is all you know, fresh off the, the printing press. This all just happened. Christianity Today, surprisingly, surprisingly posted what I thought was actually a pretty decent article on MLK. I was surprised. But this gets into why I think the narrative is changing. Um, 
they talk about on the 95th anniversary of King's birth that we need to approach King with, with humility. We need to realize that his story is not our own. And his understanding of Christian faith was probably different from ours. He was a man of both deep, flawed and profound insights. He was not the only civil rights hero or even the best one. But he was deeply uh, engaged with the Christian message of justice and reconciliation. And there's much we have yet to learn from his life. So this is Christianity Today acknowledging, you know what? He wasn't exactly orthodox theologically. And the, he had flaws. He wasn't actually the best civil rights leader. I'm a little surprised, but maybe I shouldn't be. And I would say this is evangelical left. Why are they doing this? I predicted a few years ago the Me Too stuff was going to come to haunt MLK eventually. If the Me Too movement continued, they would have to. There's no getting around it. They would have to acknowledge MLK. And, uh, and, and perhaps that's part of what's happening here. But I think the, the shift on the right was, uh, was even more was bigger to me. I, I should uh, actually just preface it with before I get to the right. Um, I noticed uh, Trevin Wax and Kate Shellnut. So Trevin Wax from the Gospel Coalition, Kate Shellnut for, from Christianity Today, both reposted this uh, this article from Christianity Today. And if you look at their previous uh, Twitter activity, this is not all of it, but this is some of it on MLK. They are glowing about MLK. I mean, they love MLK. Uh, he is, he is the standard. I mean, he's, he's, I won't read you all of them. You can go back and look at it yourself, but, uh, I, I consider this a shift. This is a shift on the evangelical left that, you know what, we're going to acknowledge that he's not the best. Maybe we're going to, we're, we're going to say that, uh, he, maybe he's not as much of our guy as he, he was. You see on the evangelical right, which is, I, I would consider, uh, and I, I mean, right by, I'm not saying they're like the based right or the. Uh, dissident right or the um you know i don't know the I, I, they're, they're more classical liberals i would say but but they they're, they're on the right as far as you know they're they're orthodox in their theology for the most part uh, i think i think yeah i have to say for the most part because of owen strawn mostly but and his trinitarian ideas but um yeah, but but they're not on the woke side of things we'll say at least when it comes to uh you know the, the radical woke stuff and so so g3 josh bice owen strand those guys um they they also said things in the past, like Josh Bice said, MLK's dream will be fulfilled one day before God's throne. I mean, it's the same thing you just saw in the Gospel Coalition's piece. He's saying the same thing. Uh, no Jim Crow laws, racism, terrorism, or segregation. Praise the Lamb. You know, but what's the vision before God's throne? I mean, it's it's every tribe, tongue, nation, all of that. Well, what does he do? He reposts the article from Virgil Walker, which was a great article about MLK and. You know, basically, the real MLK is is not a good guy. He's he's bad theology. He's got a false gospel. Um, Owen Strawn, same thing. Uh, back in 2014, you know, he's grateful for MLK, and uh, and his uh, a man who peaceably bent the world to the racial ethics of Scripture. May we work towards the same end. And then he reposts Virgil Walker's thing yesterday uh, that uh, uh, th this article critical of MLK. So. You have a shift going on. Charlie Kirk, uh, I would say, you know, evangelical on, on the right and as well as the political right. And, you know, for years praising MLK on his Twitter. We need more MLK and less Jesse Jackson, which is funny to me because the reason Jesse Jackson is where he is is because of his association with MLK. If you think about it, that's why just just go on Google and type in Jesse Jackson, MLK, do an image search and see, all, you know, he was with them all the time. Um MLK was a hero. Uh, Nonviolence leads to redemption and the creation of a beloved community. MLK. I mean, he's just quoting MLK. It's this interesting one from 2019 where he goes after Joe Biden 
it's it's this really i just thought this was such a stretch he's praising segregationists because he called john stennis who opposed the civil rights act and fought against mlk day as a holiday man of character and courage so you, you can't do that apparently if you oppose the mlk day uh you can't be a man of character and courage right and then what happens yesterday charlie kirk who was mlk a myth has been created and has grown totally out of control right but charlie was the one watering the plant of that myth right so, I mean, so were a lot of people, right? Um, while he was alive, most people disliked him. Yet today he is the most honored, worshipped, even deified person in the 20th century. Today we are going to tell the truth and explain how the myth was born. Happy Monday. Guys, that is an about face. Don't, don't, don't miss this. That was a complete about face from Charlie Kirk. It was an about face from Owen Strand. It was an about face from Josh Bice. It was an about face from Kate Shelnut. They're changing what they're saying about MLK. And by the way, I noticed yesterday there's less MLK stuff going around, which is interesting for an election year. I remember the first episode I ever did on MLK was because all the Southern Baptist seminaries in 2019 had gotten together uh, or, or they had made uh, they, they had given interviews, I guess, to Baptist Press, I think it was. And they had all said how much king meant how he was a baptist and he was solid and this and that and we're going to celebrate him and it was this whole big shindig for mlk at and it was every southern baptist seminary as i remember you don't see that i think crew posted something about it someone told me you know that there was a few ministries it's not it's not like it was uh i don't know what that means exactly i don't know if that's because on the left, if it's because of the Me Too stuff, I don't know if on the right, it's just because of the the heretical stuff. But I'm going to talk about something deeper today that or 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 different today, uh, his actual views, his policy views, his social views. And I think that on the right, that is having an impact as well. I think people are realizing he is not the person that they were led to believe or they thought. Now, before we get there, I do want to uh, take some questions. Um if there's anyone who is listening right now who's in the chat, I know there's two people uh, streaming uh, from Patreon right now. Uh, I, I'm just going to, you can put your microphone off and I'll come to you. Um, but otherwise, I am going to go to the, just the comments and there's a lot of them. I'm not going to be able to get to all of them. John, uh, you are you are brave to take on one of the sacred cows of the last 50 years. Yeah, well, you know, it... it I'm becoming, it, it doesn't take as much bravery because of the shift, not to play it, you know, downplay it. I mean, what was RFK Jr. just like two or three days ago, uh, defended his father's surveillance of MLK or, you know, authorizing the surveillance of MLK by the FBI. And he is being raked over coal. So yes, obviously MLK is like, he is the, I would say the top figure in all of American history to respect and to honor in the minds of our elites right now there, there's no doubt about that but but i think it's becoming especially on conservative circles less taboo to give some critiques my critique though you're right my my critique may be a little more uh hard-hitting um curious george says from what i've seen the mlk worship in conservative circles comes primarily from boomers most younger people are either waking up to the reality of who he was or are indifferent i think that's probably true to some extent it's the people who are old enough or young enough when um they didn't they, they lived through uh when they were kids some of this but it, it was like when when this process was kind of uh becoming when, when mlk was in the process of becoming a legend 
when this when, when the cement was hardening around his legend, they were coming of age. And so that could be part of it. I mean, some people also you, you got to understand that there, there are people who lived in areas where there was racial, real uh, racial division and conflict. And they do not look at those times fondly. And many of them look at those times uh, with guilt. Now, there's obviously, depending on where you lived and stuff, a lot of my family in Mississippi, they don't have any of that. You know, I talked to the, the older ones and I mean, they got along great with their black neighbors. It, it wasn't something that affected them as much. But uh, there were people, especially in more urban areas, uh, whether in the northern cities or in the south, who um, who did experience some things. And, you know, they, they don't look fondly on those times. And so... MLK has become a symbol of those times going away. Now, I think the results, the cure has been worse than the disease in a way. Uh, you can just look around you today. I mean, are, where are the education standards? Where are the, where are the crime? Where's the uh, out of wedlock births? Where, you know, all the, the, the metrics you would use to judge a civilization are in the tank compared to, to where they were in the 60s. Uh, you know, people on welfare, you know, whatever standard you want to use. Uh, it's it's worse. Uh, and, it, you know, white flight did not make it any better. Um, it's just so. So, so anyway, uh, I think you're right, though. I think that might be part of the reason. So um, well, my brother actually has his microphone off. I wasn't expecting this, but I'm going to let him come on the podcast here for a minute and then I'll get back to the slideshow here. Hey, aren't you, Can you hear me today? Yeah, Howdy. <laughs> I thought you were working. No, there's a. Uh... In East Tennessee, we got snow. Like we got so much snow that everything shut down for like a week. Wow. Yeah, well, we got it intense. right now, but it's not. Uh, it's probably like an inch. It's not really. Oh whoa. whoa. Okay, I'm gonna mute you. If you have, um, I don't know what's going on with your speaker, but there's some feedback and it's pretty bad. So, yeah, move your mic or something. I don't know. Okay. No. Uh, all right, yeah, go, go ahead. You got your truth script on uh, stuff. I on do, too, yeah. I'm working on working on stuff today. Um, no, I was just gonna say that. So, I worked for about five years in like an inner city school district. So, MLK Day. I mean, there were events around MLK Day, and every school that you walked into, like the school I worked at for several years, you would walk in, and like there would be a giant MLK staring down at you from the ceiling, and every single classroom had uh, a portrait of him. It was really clear, like this, because there's no, there's no Jesus, there's no, you know, there's no other American, like prominent American figure, um, you know, being placed throughout the schools. And this was like, in Tennessee, this isn't as common, but like in inner city school districts, um, that's really, really, really typical. And when I noticed, like going through and also going through like teaching history, because um, because this is sort of the civil rights, like MLK day, I guess MLK, I guess it's his birthday. I guess we're celebrating his birthday. But um, the MLK holiday that schools get off is the civil rights holiday. Like that's, that's the like thematically, that's sort of what it represents. Um, and, uh, you know, so you'll like, there'll be discussions of Malcolm X and other figures that are prominent. What just always stuck out to me was, because um, you also hear like W.E.B. Du Bois, some of these major figures, but Booker T. Washington, I don't think I've ever had like a single student or uh, talk to any educator who has like read his book or knows almost anything about him. Um, but if you go pre-MLK, um, when it comes to, I, I don't know if you, I guess you'd say like black issues, 
Um, Booker T. Washington was like the authority. He was considered the, you know, his book was a bestseller. It's, you know, I think everybody should read it. It's excellent. Um, but MLK is sort of the replacement because when he when he came along and then when the, the holiday was instituted in 1983, it totally just, it's, it's like he doesn't exist. It's really weird, but I don't know. That's just what I was thinking as you were going through that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, for people who don't know, you uh, work in the public school system and have for a few years uh, in both New York and Tennessee. So you're seeing what actual kids on the ground are learning through the government education system. And uh, and so, so you're verifying what I was saying, that MLK is pretty much like a religious figure almost. Very um, much so. I would compare him to Mandela. So like in South Africa, it's very similar. Mandela, I mean, Mandela is everywhere. There's portraits of him. He's a Christ-like figure. He's he's treated like, and then oftentimes, like when you hear, I mean, even like Glenn Beck, when he talks about, you know, he'll say Gandhi, MLK, Jesus, yes. Mandela. Yeah. Like it's always like, and yeah. that's the, the, those are like the four Christ figures, which, you know, three of those are 20th century figures. And then the other one lived 2000 years ago and continues to live. So uh, it's like, it's, it's so, it's so blatantly clear that it's like, it's a neo-religion. It's yeah. a, it's, it's so religious in the way that like the reverence and the, like the way he's spoken about. I mean, I, if I, there was one office I would walk into um, when I worked in, in the inner city and like the principal had in his study, like a, a, a uh, like a, a picture on the wall with MLK in heaven and like these kids like looking up at him like crying these tears and it said like he changed the course of history when heaven received i'm like this is like jesus this is this is you've replaced jesus with mlk i mean it's it's a um it, it's it's a it's a thoroughly religious uh, like reading of him a thoroughly religious um you know outlook yeah <clears throat> it's an establishment of religion isn't it no uh it, it's weird how the people who like really hate the lost cause mythology they'll call it or um, even some of the like American exceptionalism and and uh, some of the like stories of some of them maybe apocryphal of George Washington and so forth uh, are, will readily accept this kind of thing. Like they have no problem uh, lionizing someone like MLK. Um, so yeah, it, it just goes to show you though. Obviously, there's hypocrisy, but there's an agenda to forward. I, I think a certain view of egalitarianism and uses MLK to do that. He's the personification of it. Um, I think you read, I, I have not read it. I've heard uh, some podcasts that talk about it, but the book Race War in High School, which uh, talks about kind of the implementation of civil rights laws in, I think it, it's a high school in Long Island, if I'm not mistaken, or New York. Yeah, it's, uh, and it was um, a, night, it's it was a nightmare. Brooklyn. It was an absolute nightmare, an absolute disaster. And I know we're dealing with the effects of that. You, if you want to say a brief word on that, go for it and then we'll uh, I mean, it'll, it'll open your, I, I you know, I was, I, well, I guess I listened to somebody read it, but um, I, I don't, uh, Mar Martyr Made, I can't remember his name, but that podcast series, he did a series on um, like sort of civil rights era uh, riots. And I learned a lot of stuff from his series that I didn't know, um, or I sort of loosely knew, but um Post when MLK died, I guess that would be like historically speaking, most for whatever reason, I think it's just because we move on to the, the summer of 2020 will probably be like this, too. It might be kind of like memory hold. But the summer of 68 was um, and then over the next I can't remember which year the New York, the Newark riots were. But like we grew up, I grew up close to we both grew up close to Newark, New Jersey. 
and it's an extremely depressed place. It's very, um, like you can just feel the heaviness in the air. It's, it's, you know, it's poor, but it's also just, it's very, uh, just very dingy. It's very, things are falling apart and, you know, people, you try to avoid it if you can, it's just not a place you really want to be. Um, what I didn't know is that in uh, like following Martin Luther King's death, there was a riot there that was so, uh, it went on for a very long time. They had to bring the military in. Um, and there were, there were snipers on the roof. It was basically a, it was basically a war. There was a, there was a, um, you know, a, a internal insurrection, I guess, going on in that city. And those similar events went on all throughout the country following MLK's uh, death. So he's kind of used and like, he's dead. So it's hard to like blame him for what happened after that. But the reaction to his death wasn't, oh, we're going to keep on, you know, doing exactly what he did. We're gonna, it was incredible. It was basically insurrections and, and violence that went on for several years. And 1968 was, was unreal. I mean, it was, that's one of the reasons why so many people moved out of urban areas into suburban areas. So race were at high school. Um, I can't remember. I think it's Washington. I want to say Washington or Arlington high school. It's in Brooklyn, but it's a very, um, it's a very interesting, like zoomed in sort of, this is what it was like on the ground level during that time period. And you just get the sense that, okay, this when these when these when the whole movement like played out it was disastrous for almost everybody involved um because it was forced because it was a forced thing i, I mean I, at least that's what i think i think that's why it was such a disaster um but you don't get any of that most people are completely unaware of the incidents following his death and what that like even the the policies that he was like pushing so hard how did these actually play out were they good for society were they bad for society um you know yeah so so i just uh, posted it if people want to read it uh they can check it out race war in high school i have not read all of it um but it is free on archive.com or dot org uh all right yeah well thanks dave uh you want to plug anything true script uh yeah i mean i'm working on something right now about the flood so i'm gonna try to have that up this afternoon was it global or was it local Oh, that's, uh, uh, what's the guy's name? Someone just, uh, Gavin Ortland, Gavin Ortland. Yeah. He just posted something about it. It's just a local event. And yeah, <laughs> I was like, oh boy. Yeah. I said this morning, like one thing that as I'm looking into just because for whatever reason, post 2020, there hasn't been a lot of discussion about origins, which is weird because when I was in college, which is a de you know, almost a decade ago now, but that was the like primary discussion topic was something things to do with origins whether it was evolution and then among christians it would be like well is the earth old is it and there was a constant need to like mesh um whatever you were being taught in class with what you were reading in the bible and the overwhelming majority of students they just apostatized when they got to to college i went to a secular university so that's what i experienced um but i mean my theory is that it seems like the the, the overall arguments kind of moved into the COVID realm during uh, the pandemic, because those arguments kind of ceased. Like nobody was talking, people weren't talking about, you know, the flood and was it local or how old is the earth and day age theory. It just hasn't really been a topic of conversation. Instead, we were arguing about vaccines. We were arguing about masks, whether or not you're six feet from somebody, if you can give them a virus. Like those were the, those were the arguments instead. It's, I, I think they're, they're basically the same argument because you either, believe the mainstream you believe what you're being told like whether it was in you know elementary middle and high school about geology and biology and where the earth came from and all that 
um, or you believe the biblical narrative and your assumptions are going to put you to, to very different places. So um, it's just interesting as you like go into, oh, this guy's saying this. And then it doesn't take very long. You're like, oh, he was also like soft peddling everything when it came to COVID and he was pushing the vaccine and he was, there's like a direct line, a direct parallel between those interesting two, uh, subjects. So anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. All right. Well, thanks, Big look David. for it this afternoon, probably by like four Eastern time. All right. Sounds good. If people want to support TruthScript, then go to truthscript.com uh, and that's where you can see the article. All right. Well, uh, we're going to continue here and um, talk about the, oh, Jake Starbuck for $2 says Lincoln and MLK are the idols of the U.S. civil religion. Okay. Wanted to just uh, mention that. And um, if you have any questions, put them in the comment box. We're going to continue here with our foray into all things MLK. There's a lot more I have to share. I said this was going to be a long one and uh, it definitely is going to be a long one. So there's a book called The Radical King. Uh, someone asked me yesterday, said, John, what book would you recommend people look at if they want to know the king, the real king of the left or the king, the king we don't hear about? Uh, because we, we, all we hear about is pretty much this one speech where he says, uh, all men are created equal and that he wants a colorblind society and it's patriotic. And so what can you tell me that uh, would contradict or at least show that, you know, MLK wouldn't have been so opposed to the the woke stuff that we're dealing with today? And I said, I would look at The Radical King by Cornell West. Now, Cornell West, obviously super woke. <laughs> um, so it, it, it's not from a conservative perspective. I mean, most books in academia, especially are written by people who are not conservative. So as a conservative, you have to learn to navigate that. But the reason that I recommended it was because it's primarily just primary sources. It's just speeches from MLK. Uh, and so it's him in his own words. And Cornell West is pretty much just the editor. But the way he introduces it, I want to read this for you. This is the introduction to the book. He says, the FBI transcripts of June 27, 1964 phone conversation reveals Malcolm X received a message from Martin Luther King Jr. This message supported the idea of getting the Human Rights Decla Declaration of the United Nations to expose the unfair, vicious treatment of black people in America. Malcolm X replied that he was eager to meet Martin Luther King Jr. as soon as the next afternoon. If they had met that day and worked together, the radical king would be well known. In a speech to staff in 1966, King explained there must be a better distribution of wealth and maybe America must move towards a democratic socialism. If he had lived and pursued this project, the radical King would be well known. On April 4th, 1968, in Memphis, the last day of his life, Martin Luther King Jr. phoned Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta and the title of his sermon, Why America May Go to Hell, if he had preached this sermon, the radical King would be well known. I want to suggest to you that Martin Luther King and Jeremiah Wright aren't actually all that different. And the conservatives uh, talking heads today on the media would probably try to tell you that actually they're on completely opposite sides of the political landscape. But I'm, I'm here to tell you that, no, uh, they, they would not have that. They, they weren't, they really just weren't. And it's based on what you're going to be reading here. So first heretical religious teachings, we'll start there. Um, most people probably watching this podcast know about this by now, but uh, he was ecumenical. Uh, he said in a uh, March 22nd, 1959, um, he prayed and he said, Oh, gracious heavenly father, we thank thee for the fact that you've inspired men and women in all nations. 
And in all cultures, we call you different names. Some call the Allah, some call you Elohim, some call you Jehovah, some call you Brahma, and some call you the unmoved mover. Some call you architect. <laughs> I can't even say that. Um, arch architectonic good. But we know that these are all names for one and the same God. So very ecumenical. Obviously, right there, that's a deviation from orthodoxy, blatantly so. When he was marching in Selma, Alabama, uh, he marched with Protestants, Catholics, and Jews. And he, he says this, and then he says that this was, uh, he calls it a second great awakening of the church in America. So the Second Great Awakening is a march with Protestants, Catholics, and Jews for some kind of a civil rights initiative. So th that's ecumenical. That's you're, you're broadening who counts as a saved individual or a Christian based upon their political stance instead of based upon uh, their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he also, and I think there's more than just this one quote, but if you look at what he said about the Trinity— uh, it, it, he's all over the place. One of the things he says about the Holy Spirit is he says the Holy Spirit is the continuing community creating reality that moves through history. He works against he who works against community is working against the whole of creation. So it, basically it, it it's almost like a panentheistic idea. It seems like the Holy Spirit is not a person. He's this force within the, the community, a community that's working for social action. He also obviously believed in the social justice gospel. Uh, he wrote a Coretta Scott in 1952. Let us continue to work and pray uh, that in the future we will live to see a warless world, a better distribution of wealth, and a brotherhood that transcends race or color. This is the gospel that I will preach to the world. That's obviously not the Christian gospel. Um, he said in letter from Birmingham jail, is organized religion too extricably bound to the status quo to save our nation and the world? Perhaps I must turn my faith to the inner spiritual church, the church within the church, as the true ecclesia and hope of the world. So he's saying that the people who go to church who are Christians, uh, who they, they may have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but because they don't agree with him politically on immediate action, an immediate end to segregation and, and, and other things, they are not, they, they're disqualified from being part of the church. Uh, so, so you see there that only with a false gospel does that even make sense. He had a faulty Christology. He said in 1968, this is right before his death, Jesus started Operation Breadbasket and the first sit-in movement. Jesus, according to King, also had a glow of the divine. Now, if you've studied any of the liberal theologians, when they say glow of the divine, it, they're not, they're saying he's not divinity. He's got divinity in him. He's got a glow of it. He's a sense of it, but it's also a sense we can have. Now, I only point out that language to say that, you know, in uh, in the late 50s, when he was at uh, Boston College, uh, he had written, or maybe it was the mid 50s, but he had written, um, make, or, or rather, the humanity and divinity of Jesus. And people often point to that and say he was a heretic because he denied uh, who Jesus was. But you see language, you see little things throughout his life that say, yeah, he, there's no reason to believe he changed his, his view on that. Now, let's talk about his social views and his political views, all right? This is the meat here. Martin, and, and I'm going to do a lot of reading here, but uh, pay attention. This is, this is important stuff if, if you're trying to figure this whole MLK thing out. Now, in order to answer the question, I, I should say where this is from first. This is from um, Where Do We Go From Here, Chaos or Community? It's a book from 1967 by MLK. He says, now, in order to answer the question, where do we go from here, which is our theme, we must first honestly recognize where we are. When the Constitution was written, 
a strange formula to determine taxes and representation declared that the Negro was 60% of a person. Today, another curious formula seems to declare he is 50% of a person. Now, I did a whole podcast on the three-fifths compromise. That's just not true. That is not anything close to what they were negotiating uh, as far as representation is concerned. They weren't saying he's 60% of a person. Um, but uh, but he, he then goes on to say that, you know, things haven't changed that much. I guess it's only a 10% difference because today he's only 50% of a person. Of the good things in life, the Negroes are approximately one half of those of whites. Okay, so <laughs> of the bad things of life, he has twice those of whites. Thus, half of all Negroes live in substandard housing and Negroes have half the income of whites. When we turned to the negative experiences of life, the Negro has a double share. There are twice as many unemployed. The rate of infant mortality among Negroes is double that of whites. And there are twice as many Negroes dying in Vietnam. And, and so he goes on and on. It's all disparities, right? It's all the things you're used to hearing in 2020 that, look, this the, the housing, uh, the housing, you know, homeownership and uh, house uh, income and uh, salaries and, and all these other things, savings. It, it, there's a disparity. White people on the whole have more now. Of course, they don't separate out, you know, Jewish people have a whole lot more than your stand, you know, standard white people from Europe. Uh, you have, uh, you know, Indian people uh, have more than white people uh, in certain ways. Uh, you have different you know, kinds of white people. You have people in Appalachia are, I mean, you, they'll give pretty much anyone in the inner city a run for their money when it comes to access to healthcare um, and diseases. And I mean, there's, there's so many disparities, but, but this was used as a way to say something unfair has happened here. Something very unfair because the reason for these disparities is because of oppression. And so in order to correct that oppression, we must redistribute, right? That was what we heard in 2020. MLK is building that same case and, and even saying, and, and I want you don't miss this. You're going to see this all through MLK. He's using these economic disparities to say that, they they point to the idea that black people are only 50% of a person. So in other words, uh, this society at the society at the time that he lived was viewing them as half a person. Now, the other thing that I saw a whole lot in 2020, and I still see it in evangelical Christian circles, is this idea that because you're for the Imago Dei, because you're for the image of God, you must be for some social program. You must be for some political action. Um, and it's not action like, you know, a necessarily abortion type, like stopping abortion, which would be a correct application of that directly. It is, uh, we need to increase access to things like insurance and healthcare and education. And, and that is what uh, it means. Government job trainings and WIC programs. And th if we don't do these things, then we somehow are not for the image of God. MLK was crafting that very same argument when he was uh, doing his uh, activism. That same argument we keep hearing today, and it, it just seems confusing. And we, we've navigated this many times with Tim Keller and uh, with J.D. Greer and with David Platt and with Matt Chandler and you know with so many. This was all. This is all part of the playbook that's already been used. Um. So, yeah, so, so I, I'm calling this stuff conflict theory. I mean, I was trying to think of, you know, what do I call this? I mean, this is an aspect because you'll see later Martin Luther King Jr. will say that he doesn't adopt Marxism or at least every aspect of Marxism. But he adopts the key things, really, that are in, that I would say are necessary for 
Marxism to uh, to be implemented. And, and conflict fear is one of them. And so there's this understanding that, hey, look, there's a society that views black people as 50 percent of a person. And guess what? The result is, well, they lag behind economically. He also says we have notoriously uh, been silent about the more than 700 million of American capital, which props up the system of apartheid, not to mention the billions of dollars in trade and military alliances, which are maintained under the, under the pretext of fighting communism in Africa. The life and destiny of Latin America are in the hands of the United States corporations. Here we see racism in its more sophisticated form, neocolonialism. Former generations could not conceive of such luxury, but their children now take this vision, listen to this, and demand that it become a reality. And when they look around and see that the only people who do not share in the abundance of Western technology are colored people, it is an almost inescapable conclusion that their condition and their exploitation are somehow related to their color and the racism of the Western white world. So what is he saying? Corporations, global trade patterns, um, military defense against communism, all of this stuff is creating a situation where only white people have access to technology that makes their lives better. And people in South Africa who aren't white in other parts of the world don't have that same access. And so, you know, what's the solution? You're bringing up the problem. What's going to be the solution? The problem, generally, the way you diagnose the problem is going to drive the solution. Well, of course, if, if the problem is racism, if the problem is uh, 700 million of American capital that's going to South Africa because of trade, then we got to stop trading with South Africa, right? Uh, we got to make sure that because of what they do, because of their policy, that we're not benefiting them in that way. And of course, history has played out and we've seen exactly what's happened to South Africa when the United States uh, and started um, uh, it started under, I think, Jimmy Carter, but they started uh, putting sanctions on South Africa. And it is a mess in South Africa today. Uh, we, I mean, look at Rhodesia, if you really want a clear picture of what that does. And, and MLK does talk about Rhodesia, not in this quote, but in other quotes. Uh, he saw Rhodesia as a problem too. I mean, the cures were worse than the disease. Rhodesia is a horrible place to live. It, it, the standards went down for everyone, and so is South Africa in many ways uh, compared to what it used to be. And this, this is the result of MLK's thinking uh, being put into action. Um, he also called, he called Northern ghettos uh, colonial areas. So there, there's a post-colonialism to MLK. Like the, it's the West, it's these colonial empires, colonial people, white people, European people against uh, Indians and Native uh, Americans and black people. And of course, black people especially is, is who he advocated for. And, and so he, he views everything this way. Even, uh, you know, Jewish uh, landlords in Chicago were viewed this way. They are colo they're, they're colonizers, basically, because of the way they, sent, uh, they set rent prices. So this is, th these are his social views. Um, he also had a very strong black in-group preference. Now, I want to say something about this. This is how you know the I have a dream speech was for a broad audience. It was meant to be televised and it was meant to go far and wide. And it was meant Martin Luther King Jr. If you, if you read enough of his writings, you become intimately familiar with the fact that he was very conscious about how white people thought of him. Uh, he didn't even want to use the, the term black power because he thought it would scare them away. Right. He wanted their approval. He and he was good at it. I, I, I was, will say. And that speech, I think, uh, was, and I'm not the only one who thinks this, was intentionally phrased in such a way to 
gain as much white support or, or people who you know weren't black, their support in the United States as possible for civil rights initiatives. And, and, and so what, what I'm about to read sounds like it's in contradiction to it because it, and maybe Martin Luther King Jr. wouldn't have seen the contradiction. I don't think he would have. And I don't think the people marching with him would have either because there is this, this, this sort of uh, way you, you still see it today with the left where there, there'll be a heavy in-group preference for Jewish people, for pretty much everyone who's not white can have an in-group preference. What do I mean by that? Uh, you, you only marry among yourselves. You, uh, you, know, you only do business with each other. You only hire each other. You, uh, you make sure you support each other in every way you can. Uh, you give preference. So, so if you had, let's say, you're an employer and you had two people apply, one of them's black, one of them's uh, Chinese, you're going to hire the black person, right? If you're, if you're a black employer, that would be an in-group preference. Uh, if all other things being equal. Okay. So Martin Luther King Jr. Um, was, was very strong on in-group preference. And you see a lot of the leftists today are like that. You know, you have to, they'll shake, you know, Al Sharpton will shake down a company and they have to support uh, black people in that neighborhood. They have to do business with, uh, you know, if you were, ha you had, let's say a, like a, a garbage uh, service that was owned by Italians, it now has to be black owned or else you're going to be boycotted, right? You're going to be destroyed and the media is going to show up. Martin Luther King Jr. was the one who started doing those kinds of tactics. And he did it in a number of like 15 cities or so. It was a bunch of cities where Operation Breadbasket was. They were doing that kind of thing. And it's to benefit a certain group, right? That that would seem, I think, in the in the mind of most normies, <laughs> it would seem to contradict. Wait a minute, the I have a dream speech is, is a colorblind society. And this is blatantly seeing color. Yes, that's the point, guys. That is the point. You've got to be able to see this. If you don't see this, then politically, you're going to just have your clock cleaned by the left every time because they play on that side of you. They play on that side of like that, that honors fairness, that wants to get along, that want, hey, let's, let's just all be Americans. Uh, no one is going to judge anyone else based on any external factor. And then what they do in principle or in action, what they practically do is not that. And they will then tell you that you are expected if you are, uh, you don't even have to be white. You could just be a conservative, to be quite honest with you. If you are politically on the right, they will tell you that you must support those blatantly preferential initiatives uh, in order to support equality because it's over, it's correcting, it's overcorrecting for an, an inequality, right? Martin Luther King Jr. was about this from day one, he was about this kind of thing. That's the that's the that that's the frustrating thing for me to get people to see because they're so focused on this one line in the eye of a dream speech, and they can't see this. All right, I've built I've built up everyone's anticipation. What did he say? Here's a few things. Indeed, one of the great problems that the Negro confronts in his lack of power from the old plantations of the South to the newer ghettos of the North, the Negro has been confined to a life of voicelessness and powerlessness stripped of the right to make decisions concerning his life and destiny. He's been subject to the authoritarian and sometimes whimsical decisions of the white power structure. Now, you're getting hints of the, hey, you need us. You need us. You can't do it on your own. You're subject to us, right? That lack of responsibility we see. You're seeing hints of it here. The plantation and the ghetto were created by those who had power, both to confine those who had no power and to perpetuate their powerlessness. Now the problem of transforming the ghetto, therefore, is a problem of power. 
a confrontation between the forces of power demanding change and the forces of power demanding to the preserving of the status quo. Now, power properly understood is nothing but the uh, ability to achieve purpose. It is the strength required to bring about social, political, and economic change. Walter Ruther defined power one day. He said power is the ability of a uh, labor union like the UAW to make the most powerful corporation in the world, General Motors, say yes when it wants to say no. That's power. This is where you get the shaking down of the corporations. And by the way, where are all the Christians like David French and Russell Moore and Karen Swallow Pryor who complain about, and Beth Moore, about Christians shouldn't be about power, but yet they'll honor MLK, who was all about power. The hypocrisy knows no limit. These people on the Christian left, these people that so many follow and think are great sages, they are they are pawns of the the larger political left, and they are being they are um, funded and then well in par- partially funded, but they are supported. They are platformed in order to try to make us more conservative evangelicals and our political goals uh, fail. That's the only reason. And you can see it in this kind of stuff when you're like, wait a minute. I mean, all about power. How come the ML, they love MLK, but that's all he was about. And then, you know, Stephen Wolf talks about Christians, Christ, not even white people, just Christians should pursue power. It's like, oh, we, we shouldn't do that. Here's another one. No one has ever heard the Jews publicly chant a slogan of Jewish power, but they have power through group unity, determination and creative endeavor. They have gained it. Okay, that's the in-group preference. The same thing is true of the Irish, the Italians. Neither group has used a slogan of Irish or Italian power, but they have worked hard to achieve it. This is exactly what we must do. I said we must use every constructive means to amass economic and political power. This is the kind of legitimate power we need. We must work to build racial pride and refute the notion that the uh, black is evil and ugly. But this must come through a program, not merely through a slogan. It is necessary to understand that black power is a cry of disappointment. The black power slogan did not spring full grown from the head of some philosophical Zeus. It was born from the wounds of despair and disappointment. It is a cry of daily hurt and persistent pain for centuries. The Negro has been caught in the tentacles of white power. Many Negroes have given up faith in the white majority because white power with total control has left them empty handed. So in reality, the call for black power is a reaction to the failure of white power. You want to talk about power dynamics, right? Which is what CRT is all about. MLK was all about that. And, you know, and you have conservatives who say, oh, it's MLK. He wouldn't have been. He wouldn't have been for that. He was against CRT. Yeah, well, <laughs> a lot of the elements of CRT you see squarely in MLK, including this, this obsession with power. And by the way, a lot of things he says, there's actually some truth to this. I mean, he's power. There, there is like a sense in which um, I, I'm not validating all of his history or, you know, the, the power to the exclusion of other factors. But you know, power is something that need that that has to be pursued on a political and social level um, to have uh, control. And and I mean, this is just a reality of life. Politics is power. There's no getting away from that. MLK understood that. But you, you see him endorsing here the Black Power movement, and he didn't want to use the term. He wanted to call it like Black Equality or something. He said that's what we're about. We're trying to. We're all we're trying to do is pursue equality. But what effectively was he doing? In order to pursue equality, there had to be a strong in-group preference, and that meant destroying businesses that um, that stood in the way, uh, getting government to to stand in and create laws that would force this kind of equality that he's 
talking about here. And of course, that brings us into the egalitarian instinct, the views on equality that MLK had. Uh, when the church is true, he said to its nature, it says, whosoever will let him come. And it is not supposed to satisfy the perverted use of the drum major instinct. It's the one place where everybody should be the same standing before a common master and savior. And a recognition grows out of this, that all men are brothers because they are children of a common father. Uh, the drum major instinct can lead to exclusivism in one's thinking and can lead to uh, the feeling uh, uh, one to feel rather that because he has some training, he's a little bit better than the other person. All right. I'm going to just summarize this. What he's saying is that look at the church and he's talking about in the context here, broadly speaking, he's talking about social realities and he's saying, well, look at the church. If you go in the church, you know, like, like Robert E. Lee said, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We all have one master. So no one can tell someone else that they have, that there's a hierarchy or, or an authority structure here. They can't say that they're better in any way because they have training, right? He's saying that, well, that's wrong. That, that is an egalitarian instinct. And if that is led to its ultimate conclusion, then you have chaos. Obviously, MLK didn't believe that because he was part of a hierarchy himself. You know, uh, his organization had him at the top, right? It, so, so he didn't even believe this in, in, in the, the way he acted, but this was the philosophy that he appealed to. And this is the, the acid that we see eating away at American institutions. Uh, he believed in, I would say, a rudimentary version of white privilege. Of course, they didn't use the word back then, but listen to this. He said, the large majority of the human race is non-white, yet it is the large majority that lives in hideous poverty. While millions enjoy an unexampled unex opulence in developed nations, 10,000 people die of hunger each and every day of the year in the underdeveloped world. To assert white supremacy, to invoke white economic and military power, to maintain the status quo is to foster the danger of an international race war. And this is on the U.S. trading with South Africa. So he's he's not talking about lynching, right? He's, he's talking about allowing companies in the United States to trade with South Africa. What that does, he believes, is impoverish them. And it's it establishes the white supremacy in South Africa. And it invokes white economic and military power, and because and this so this is a a uh, you know white whiteness being white carries with it a, a certain kind of privilege with it. You're you're not impoverished as much. Uh, that that's and it's on the basis of you're white. Abortion uh, for the Negro, he said, and this is just a, a a clip from the speech, but he says for the Negro, therefore, intelligent guides of family planning are a profoundly important ingredient in this quest for the security and of a decent life. This is a speech to Planned Parenthood in 1966. They gave him an award and he had his wife come and deliver a whole entire speech. You can go read that speech on Planned Parenthood's website. And I did. He was pro-abortion, guys. And he, th there's just no question about it. And, and it was all, though, on the basis of, you know, they need access to these services because of the equality. Um, social views on historical revisionism. And, and you know, the, the, the formatting gets changed a little bit when I upload it to StreamYard, so sorry about that. Um, but those who, I, I did post, I'll post it again. No, I can't, okay. So I did post earlier uh, in channel that uh, the link, if you want to uh, get this PowerPoint. Anyway, um, I'm not gonna go through all of this, but I'm gonna paraphrase some of this for you. Uh, Martin Luther King admired uh, Du Bois, who my brother just talked about. And Du Bois, the contribution he thought Du Bois made was that Du Bois showed that uh, white, that, that the history of black people in America had been perverted by white people, essentially. 
that there was a lot of things to emphasize in black history and that it needed emphasis. Uh, he said that um, they, meaning white people, corrupted Negro history when they distorted American history because Negroes are too uh, big a part of the building of this nation to be written out of it without destroying a scientific history. And so, he, so he's saying, so, so one of the things that he thinks needs to happen is history needs to be taught differently. And so this is a very long quote, which I'm not going to go through. Uh, but he he talks about all these people, many of them you have not heard of, um, who made different contributions, some of them very legitimate contributions. Uh, like, for instance, um, he talks here about, uh, let's see, Nor Norbert, I don't even know if I can pronounce this name, Relu, I think it's it's a French name, whose invention of an evaporating pan, cotton, began to uh, totter. <laughs> or no, sorry, I, I read that wrong. I read the wrong line. It's too, you see, the prince even is too small for me. Norbert Rilou, who in invention of an evaporating pan revolutionized the process of sugar refining. Okay, there you go. There's a bunch of stuff like that. Granville Woods, an expert at electric motors. There's all these black figures. Now, here's the thing about it. When you are teaching history, because I've done this, surveys of history, it is impossible. You cannot focus on everyone. And what we've seen over the last few years is these obscure characters are being pulled out of the woodwork in order to diversify the teaching of history. Uh, so, you know, I remember this even gets into homeschooling. I remember when I was a kid, I think it was like a Becca was, was talking about this. And, um, it's not wrong to mention, I think it was Crispus at Tux, if I'm not mistaken, you know, he got, died at the Boston massacre. It's not wrong to mention that. Um, you know, may, maybe I, I'm not against, you know, mentioning that, but, it's like mentioning in every history, making all of history about that is the problem. So th this is this is a Marxist, honestly, it's, it's a history from the ground up. It's a Marxist kind of approach where the things that we emphasize are not those who made significant contributions, the most significant contributions. It's not those who had the most political power. Uh, it's those who were on the margins who were ignored. So if you're going to talk about Henry Ford, you got to talk about someone who's black, who was a figure not as important, but uh, also made some contribution to the automobile industry, that kind of thing. Th this is the revisionism. Now it's called memory studies that we see today. That's uh, promoted by critical race theorists. Martin Luther King Jr. was was doing this. And, and this doesn't really lend itself to much of a national unity. If, if you notice, like the, the purpose of this is to specifically, again, it's the in-group preference. It's to highlight the achievements of black people. And, I, and I look, I don't think it's wrong to do that. I think actually we should. I've made the argument before. Um, I think if you want a national unity, you should focus on different kinds of people, but based on their contributions to the country as a whole. Um, so, you know, did MLK make some contributions? He did, but it, I mean, they're way overplayed. Um, who, who would be a good man of good character and good standing for, you know, for a hero for, for kids and, and others? Uh, who, who made significant contributions, who also happened to be, which is how I phrase it, from the black community. Well, I think my brother just mentioned uh, Booker T. Washington would be one. Uh, revolutionized education um, he, uh, for, for uh, black education. And, and that not only revolutionized education for, for black people, but it also made major contributions to the United States and the South through uh, one of the professors who taught there, Booker T. Washington. And uh, what he did with peanuts. And um, I mean, th there's so much to talk about there. But again, 
if, if you taught that scenario, you're not taking something obscure and then trying to make it the main thing. You're, you're talking about something that is significant. And, and that's, that, that's kind of, in my view, that's the issue with uh, changing the way his history is surveyed for people in school. Now it's basically not even a history class. It's not an American history class. It's a diversity history class where you just learn about all the people that were oppressed in some way or supposedly oppressed and uh, how bad they had it. And that's all history is now. And, and MLK certainly uh, helped get the ball rolling, I would say, in that direction. Now, political beliefs on economics, this is what probably most people are interested in. Hey, was he a socialist? Was he, was he not? Well, he believed in economic equality. He said, with Selma and the voting rights bill, one era of our struggle came to a close and a new era came into being. Now our struggle is for genuine equality, which means economic equality. Quality. That's from All Labor Has Dignity, 1968. This is right before he died. And this is one of the things that conservatives who like to lionize MLK completely miss. They think, and you saw it with that Prayer You video, which was terrible. Uh, they think that, well, the equality was realized with MLK. There was nothing left to do. So all these agitators today, they're not standing on the legacy of MLK. Uh, actually, I would beg to differ because it literally says MLK himself said that, yeah, yeah, we have uh, voting rights. Uh, our struggle came to a close. This is in 1968. This is not the Civil Rights Acts. You know, our struggle came to a close. We're, we're good on that. But guess what we need to do now? We need to fight economic inequality. Isn't that what we're dealing with now? How about the war on poverty? He said, now that we've, uh, we've got... Uh, what we've got to do is to attack the problem of poverty and really mobilize the forces of our country to have an all-out war against poverty. Because what we have now is not even a good skirmish against poverty. I need not remind you that poverty, the gaps in our society, the gulfs between inordinate superfluous wealth and abject deadening poverty have brought about a great deal of despair, a great deal of tension, a great deal of bitterness. We've seen this bitterness expressed over the last few summers in the violent explosions in our cities. And the great tragedy is that the nation continues in its national policy to ignore the conditions that brought the riots of the rebellious into being. In its final analysis, the riot is the language of the unheard. And that was, was quoted by Walter Strickland, by the way, in 2020, because he said, oh, the BLM riots, it's the language of the unheard. And what is it that America's failed to hear? It's failed to hear that the plight of the Negro poor has worsened over the last few years. It has failed to hear the promises of justice and freedom have not been met. That last line needs to hang in your mind. The promises of justice and freedom have not been met, and he's not talking about just access to voting or drinking fountains. He's talking about economic inequality. You got to see this. You've got to see this. The promises that America said, we, America said, we're going to have freedom and justice for all. All men are created equal, and that is now translated into economic equality, and it hasn't been achieved. So we got to do something about it. And this is during Johnson's war on poverty. The things that destroyed the black community, Martin Luther King Jr. supported. He was one of the champions of them. The war on poverty has been devastating for the black community. Wealth redistribution. But in spite of the shortcomings of his analysis, Marx had raised some basic questions. Now, I'll talk about the shortcomings in a minute. I was deeply concerned, he says, from my early teens about the gulf between superfluous wealth and abject poverty, and my reading of Marx made me even more conscious of this gulf. Although modern American capitalism had greatly reduced the gap through social reforms, there was still a need for a better distribution of wealth. Moreover, Marx had revealed the danger of the profit motive 
as the sole basis of an economic system. Capitalism is always in danger of inspiring men to more, uh, to be more concerned about making a living than making a life. What is he saying here? He's saying, I, if you read what he says previously, this is from uh, Pilgrimage to Nonviolence, uh, from a book, Stride Toward Freedom, The Montgomery Story by MLK. So if you read the context, what he's saying is that um, he doesn't like the fact that Marx was basically an atheist, right? Or Marx, uh, Marx didn't have a spiritual underpinning for his views. And, and, and he doesn't like that. And so um, philosophically, there's a disagreement there. But what does he borrow from Marx? What does he like that Marx says? Well, he likes this class conflict stuff, you know? He likes the fact that uh, Marx is pointing out this big gap that exists that needs to be rectified economically, and that we got to do something about it. And our system uh, is not going to do something about it. So what does that mean, guys? <laughs> that means the government's got to step in. And that's where you find this stuff. Welfare and the minimum wage. A nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death. America, the richest and most powerful nation in the world, can well lead the way in this revolution of values. There is nothing to prevent us from paying adequate wages to school teachers, social workers, and other servants of the public to ensure that we have the best available personal personnel in these positions. And we are charged with the responsibility of guiding our future generations. There is nothing but a, a, a lack of social vision to prevent us from paying an adequate wage to every American citizen, whether he be a hospitable worker, laundry worker, maid, or day laborer. There is nothing except short-sightedness to prevent, prevent us from guaranteeing an annual income, annual minimum and livable income for every American family. There is nothing except a tragic death wish to prevent us from reordering our priorities so that the pursuit of peace will take precedence over the pursuit of war. There is nothing to keep us from remolding a recalcitrant, um, or, uh, recalcitrant status quo with bruised hands until we have fashioned it into brotherhood. This kind of positive revolution of values is our best defense against communism. War is not the answer. So instead of spending on military defense, we need to put money into social programs. We need to put money into welfare. We need to make sure we have a minimum wage. Affirmative action. He says we must, with affirmative action, seek to remove those conditions of poverty, insecurity, and injustice which are the fertile soil in which the seed of communism grows and develops. These are revolutionary times all over the world or over the globe. Men are revolting against old systems of, of exploitation and oppression and out of the wombs of a frail world, new systems of justice and equality are being born. It's from 1967. He was for affirmative action. Um, now, when it comes to pacifism, and anti, I'm calling it anti-defense. In anti-war, I never like that because I, it confuses things sometimes. I mean, there's people who are anti-war. I mean, no one likes war, right? Um, but there's, I would say he was anti-defense. He didn't want defense spending. He didn't want uh, any kind of measures. It, it just, I shouldn't say any kind of measures, but let, let me read it and then I'll, I'll analyze it. This is during the Vietnam era when he's saying this stuff. Um, 1959 for in a day when Sputniks and explorers are dashing through outer space and guided ballistic missiles are carving highways of death through the stratosphere. No nation can win a war today is no longer a choice between violence and nonviolence It is either nonviolence or non-existence. And this is in a, a sermon on Gandhi actually. So he's saying, basically, if we apply Gandhi's teaching to our foreign policy, then, uh, we wouldn't have these ballistic mil missiles. Uh, we, we, we have to choose nonviolence. So, you know, this is what they called it at the time, nuclear proliferation and stuff like that. They wanted to get rid of the nukes. 
Um, and he was anti-victory in Vietnam. And I say that on purpose because there are conservatives who didn't want to get in there. But once you're in there, like Barry Goldwater said, you got to win. And he said that uh, there's so much he said. I'm only putting a little bit here, but um, that the Vietnamese must see America as strange liberators. The Vietnamese people proclaimed their own independence in 1945 after a combined French and Japanese occupation. And before the Communist Revolution, uh, they were led by Ho Chi Minh. Even though they quoted the American Declaration of Independence in their own document of freedom, we refused to recognize them. Instead, we decide to support France. So th this is all about, uh, you know, China's backing uh, the, the um, North Vietnam. And th this is this is in when does he say this? This is 1967. So the Vietnam War is going on. And he's saying that the way that the Vietnamese view the Americans is that we're not really there to liberate anyone. You know, we're, we're basically the bad guys. And here's his specific policy that he thinks we should do. And all bombing in North and South Vietnam, declare a unilateral ceasefire in the hope that such action will create the atmosphere for negotiation, take immediate steps to prevent all battlegrounds in Southeast Asia by curtailing our military buildup in Thailand, uh, realistically accept the fact that the National Liberation Front is subs uh, substantial support in South Vietnam, let's see, negotiate with them, set a date uh, when we will remove all foreign troops from Vietnam in accordance with the Geneva Agreement, and he said, this is the, the, the kicker. As we counsel young men concerning military service, we must clarify for them our nation's role in Vietnam and challenge them with the alternative of conscientious objection, basically draft dodge. If you're drafted, do not go. That's what he's saying. Now, I don't know if this is true or not. I've heard many say uh, that this is the reason that we, we did a, a podcast on who shot MLK not long ago. And the, the reason that it, you know, it was, uh, it, it was probably the government involved in this is because of this kind of stuff. That's, that's what people who have studied this more than me seem to think that it was because he was discouraging participation in the war. He was encouraging black people to draft dodge. I don't know if that's true or not, but that is one of the theories that's out there. And, uh, it, it's probably a, a decent theory since we're in speculation land anyway. Um, this was not considered a position on the right at all. And I think most conservatives understand that about MLK. Now, the role of government uh, for MLK was big government. Uh, the anti, I, I call it anti-anti-communism because um, he was, well, he, he was skeptical about people who were super anti-communist. Uh, we saw that militarily uh, through trade and that kind of thing, which is one of the reasons that, you know, trade was open with South Africa. They were anti-communist. And of course, when they became communist, everything went south. So King, uh, effectively, he did the communist bidding, whether he was or, or he wasn't one, he, he definitely helped their plan. And his dis main disagreement with Marx was over Marx's spiritual views. So, you know, he bought into the class conflict stuff, but he, um, he talks about like how, you know, Dubois, because he was a communist later in his life, uh, is kind of dismissed and how that's wrong. Basically, you can't just dismiss him now. Funny enough, you know, you could apply this to people MLK didn't like, you know, you could say, well, slave owners, you know, just because they did that doesn't mean that they should all be dismissed everything. they, But, you know, he I, I'm sure that logic wouldn't be uh, the kind of logic he would buy into. And he talks about it at one time he was at a uh, uh, he, he went to like a, a recital or a play or something. And at the end, they closed with singing Dixie and he cried. He went home and he cried about it because it wasn't a black spiritual they had. You know, they, and he was upset about it. I mean, the, the cancellation we're seeing today of everything Southern, it started with MLK stuff. It started with what MLK was doing. 
Uh, totalitarian government, basically. I mean, that's really what he's, and I say practically because, again, he says things against a, a total government, but then he says stuff like this. We broke that voting coalition in 1963 and 64 when the civil rights and voting rights laws were passed. We need to break it again by the size and force of our movement. And the best place to do that is before the eyes and inside the buildings of these same congressmen. The people of this country, if not um, the congressmen, are ready for a serious economic attack on slums and unemployment, as two recent polls uh, have revealed. So we have to make Congress ready to act on the plight of the poor. This is 1968. He's saying, again, uh, that we we got this the civil rights stuff through in 63 and 64, but guess what we have to do? We got to do something for the poor now. So it's, it's a redistribution scheme. And who's going to do it? I mean, this is all at the national level. This is all, we got to create a political front, a political resi resistance at the, na not even a resistance. It's, it's a, a political action at the national level to enforce some kind of an economic equality. That plays right into Marxism. Now, what about his tactics? We're winding down here, but his tactics. Um, first of all, th there's three things I want to talk about. Immediacy is the first one. So he talks about letter from the Birmingham jail, how much he dislikes the moderate white person, the white moderate, he calls them because they agreed with him, but they didn't want him to take direct action as he calls it, uh, by obstructing things, sit-ins, you know, major protests, uh, you know, shaking down businesses, walkouts. Um, and of course I, I would say that applies even to the violence, uh, although ML MLK was against the violence. Um, they, they, they thought that there was an organic way to approach this, that, uh, that the kind of equality that MLK wanted would be achieved in time, uh, or, or not actually the kind he wanted, but at least the kind that broadly speaking, he purported to want the, that you know, people were going to be treated as fellow Americans, uh, and that there wouldn't be the same kinds of rigid kind of, uh, distinctions between black and white and other communities, um, that, that, that would come with trust in time. And, and you see this, you know, I, I've been more and more convinced that the, the government, the national government came in right at the time this was actually taking place. And, and think about it this way. Think about the long view here of history. You have slaves, uh, come over and it's not just slaves. You have, uh, you know, other groups here as well, immigrant groups and so forth, but they come over and they, they live a life of slavery and there's generations of slavery and there's some of them get freed. Some of them even own slaves. Some of them start making uh, su their success stories that happen. But, um, but, but there is this kind of like, you know, they're, they're not part of the, the body politic. Right. And then you have the civil war and you have after that a period of time where the majority of, of black people in the United States lived in the South and it's, the conditions are horrible. And they're being exploited at that time, really more like by the Republican Party for votes. And you have the Union League and you have you have uh, that's when the Klan starts to to rise up. And um, it, it's this terrible situation. And all this mistrust is then built as political mobility is given uh, to black people. It is then uh, it, it is used. It is wielded by the political enemies of the people who live in those regions. Most of the people who live in those regions. And so you have this resentment that starts building up over time, right? You have, and that's when you, you start getting, I mean, there was already Jim Crow stuff in the North. That's where it started. But you start getting it more where most of the black people live. You start getting in the South. And, um, 
And then you have, uh, you know, fast forward, you have two world wars. You have World War One, you have World War Two, and you start seeing something happening. You start seeing Southerners are being welcomed back into the Union, so to speak, as fellow Americans. They had to kind of prove themselves in war. Um, you also see, though, especially in World War Two, black people uh, and other groups start proving themselves. Hey, we're, if, if we're going to go to war, we're willing to die for this place. They, they started gaining this, this kind of respect and trust that has to be built with different groups of people when that's just a reality, like it or not, different groups of people don't immediately trust each other. Um, they, they have to, there has to be common shared something. And so shared experience in the war in wars are doing this. Then you have the rock and roll era and, and you, you have integrations going on at Billy Graham crusades at Elvis Presley concerts. And it's just happening. It's organically happening. No one's forcing it. It's just happening. And that's right when the government decides to swoop in and say, we're going to have these civil rights acts. We're going to force uh, whatever's left to do. We're going to force it. And that's when you got the violence and the white flight and the less you know education standards going down and, and all the, the things that we see today um, happen. And and so the people who are that, that Martin Luther King Jr. is writing about here in letter to the Birmingham jail, that these white moderates, that's what they're saying. They're saying, look, we, we're on a good track here. Trust is being built. If you agitate, if you force, if you obstruct, if you do this too quick, if you if you use the federal the power of the federal government, you're going to end up with a, a, a cure that may be worse than the disease. Is that what happened historically? You be the judge. I think a good book to read on this would be Christopher Caldwell's book um, on on um, on civil rights uh, era uh, called The Age of Entitlement. And you, you can figure out whether you think that that was maybe they were right. Who has history proven right? Was it MLK or was it the people who thought it should happen more organically? So MLK, and this is one of the things uh, the revolutionary mindset has, uh, I would say, at its core is this immediacy. Whatever's going on, the emergency is it must be done now. It, 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 and there are certain things that are like that, right? I mean, like abortions like that. I mean, murder's wrong. Stop it. <laughs> it's not really that hard. There's other things that aren't like that, though. Um, th there's other maladies that if you do it immediately, then you, you might have uh, the, the trade-off isn't going to be worth it. Um, you have to think of the conditions that you're in. And, and some things are not uh, necessary, like they're depending on circumstance, even, even people groups being separated. You, you look in Israel and Gaza right now, you know, uh, maybe there needs to be some separation. I mean, parents do this with kids, right? When they're little, like, well, okay, don't play together right now. Cause you're fighting. <laughs> uh, oh, are we going to like saying that's evil? That's in, inequality segregation, right? So their circumstances should drive some of this. And, and I would, I would agree circumstances, uh, needed to change, but the question is how, and so Martin Luther King Jr. believed in a strong, heavy-handed federal government imposing itself onto states and local communities in areas where, uh, in, some, in many places, there was trust already starting to be built. All right, so community, or, and by the way, that's the, that's the difference between a, a more progressive and a conservative instinct. A conservative instinct is to try to um, be as gradual as possible with most things, not everything. Um, but obviously, uh, taking into account the fact that there are traditions that have been, uh, ingrained over time, there are reasons for those things. And it's like Chesterton's fence moving 
moving the fence. The fence was erected for a reason. Why was the fence erected? We can examine that. Maybe it shouldn't have been, <clears throat> but it's there now. And you know, the farm has been operating this way for a long time. What's going to happen when we remove the fence? Um, those questions aren't asked by a revolutionary. A revolutionary just says, destroy it and basically forget about the consequences. All right. So community organizing, the second thing, um, he said, our, our citizenship education program continues to lay the solid foundation of adult education and community organizing upon which all social change, which ultimately rests. So education is what's going to bring about social change. This isn't anything different from modern progressives. He says this year, 500 local leaders received training in Dorchester and 10 community centers through our citizenship education program. And they were trained in literacy, consumer education, planned parenthood, and many other things. Our auxiliary feature of that program is the aid which we give to poor communities, poor counties, and receiving and establishing the Office of Economic Opportunity projects. We have pioneered in developing outstanding poverty programs, totally controlled and operated by residents of the area. So this, this more like holistic education now that you're seeing where schools aren't teaching the basics of like that we, we call them the basics, but reading, writing, arithmetic, right? They're now shifting to social things. They're shifting to the purpose of education now is to make things equal. And it's to, um, you know, give you access to Planned Parenthood. I mean, MLK was on the front line of this stuff. So I, this is the community organizing that Barack Obama was part of. That, that's what this is. And then, of course, business shakedowns. That was the other tactic here. Uh, through Operation Breadbasket, we have now achieved for the Negro community of Chicago more than 2,200 new jobs with an income of approximately $18 million a year, new income to the Negro community. We've also developed financial institutions which were controlled by Negroes, which were sensitive to the problems of economic deprivation. And he goes on and on. And he talks about basically how they've gone to chain stores uh, and they've forced them to do business with black businesses or to bank with black bankers, or they've given money to uh, black uh, owned banks so that they can do business uh, more effectively. And then they, then they'll shake down the business. So you must do business with our bank. Um, and uh, they did like, here's a good example. He says, we discovered that seal test had 40, 142 employees and only 43 were Negroes. Yet the population in Cleveland was 35% uh, Negro. We refused to give uh, us all. Uh, they refused to give us all the information that we requested. And we said in substance, Mr. Seal test, we're sorry, we aren't going to burn your store down. We aren't going to throw any bricks in the window, but we are going to put picket signs around. We are not going to put leaflets out. And we are going to, uh, to our pulpits. There's an establishment of religion, isn't it? Uh, I'm just being tongue in cheek. And tell them not to sell seal test products and not to purchase seal test products. So they're going to boycott, but they're going to use the pulpits to do it. They're going to use every effective measure they can because, hey, the uh, a percentage of employees doesn't fit the percentage of the population here, the ratio. Uh, and you know, it's not like they weren't hiring black people. They were, they just didn't have enough. And so that's, you know, maybe they, maybe there weren't enough black people interested in that business. Maybe there weren't enough people qualified. I mean, there's some other factors that could be at play, but it doesn't matter. The only thing is getting it equal, looking at the percentages and seeing if they're equal. So th these are the tactics he used. It had to be done immediately. Uh, it had to be done uh, through really, really government action and through these education initiatives. And it also, uh, we, we're going to force businesses. We're going to do business shakedowns. All right. So um, I only have a few slides left. I know this is a mega edition. I'm going to try to keep this under two hours. But the utopian MLK, there's a number of quotes from MLK where he talks about world peace, be, that we could achieve it, basically. 
Um, and it's not with Christ, by the way. It is if the religions of the world are to bring about world peace, uh, then we have to create the climate for it. They've got to rise to the level of not fighting among themselves. So we, we can do this through our own action, through ecumenical action. Um, he talks about the family of man. The whole human race will benefit when it ends the abomination that has dismissed the stature of man for too long. This is the task to which we are called by the suffering of South Africa and our global response should be swift and unstinting. Out of the struggle will come the glorious reality of the family of man. And he taught, he basically goes right into globalism. He says a genuine revolution of values means in the final analysis that our loyalties must become ecumenical rather than sectional. Every nation must now develop an overriding loyalty to mankind as a whole in order to preserve the best in the individual societies. So, so, and he goes on and on with this. He talks about a worldwide fellowship uh, that's beyond uh, one's tribe, race, class, and nation for an all-embracing and unconditional love for all men. I mean, it is, it is John Lennon's imagine, erase all the boundaries, erase. This is, the interesting thing is he had this strong black in-group preference, but then he would say stuff like the universal stuff, like, well, we should just get rid of all distinctions. And I'm telling you, they, he, in the mind of a leftist, it, you have to rectify the inequality, and then you're setting yourself up for the utopian scheme. So once black people are equal, and you know, then, then you won't have those things anymore. You can knock off the ladder, I guess you've climbed up. The problem is those ladders are pretty natural. Most people have an in-group preference. Uh, of some kind, most groups, I should say, have an in-group preference of some kind. Um, depends what the group is, right? Uh, uh, so, so this is, um, it would seem to be in conflict. It's not though. I'm telling you it's not. Um, now, uh, let's see some more, some of his influences. This is not all, but some of his influences, Walter Rauschenbusch, uh, founder of the social gospel. He said Rauschenbusch had done a great service to the church by insisting that the gospel deals with the whole man, not only his body, but uh, soul, but his body. Um, and the material well-being. Uh, Gandhi, of course, we've already talked about that. He said that uh, he believed that Gandhi was more than anyone else in the modern world caught the spirit of Jesus Christ and lived it more completely in his life. Gandhi, yeah, more than anyone else. Uh, Hegel, he liked Hegel a lot. He, he talks, this is a little philosophical, but he says his con uh, Hegel's contention that truth is the whole led me to a philosophical method of rational coherence. His analysis of the dialectical process, in spite of its shortcomings, helped me to see that growth comes through struggle. What he's saying there is that Hegel's, you, you have like a synthesis, thesis, and then, or rather um, thesis, antithesis, anti and then synthesis. Uh, you think about like you have being, non-being, uh, becoming, right? That's like thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Well, the truth is the whole. The truth is all of those things. And so he's what he's saying here is that he adopted this method. And so, so in this method, you have... Uh, uh, you, you have like the proletariat, you have the bourgeoisie, and the truth is not in either. The truth is kind of like a mixture of things. The truth is, is the synthesis of those things. So they come together and then you have a new group. And, and the way that history moves is through these, these synthesis. So once you have a new synthesis, it becomes a thesis. Thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Uh, you, you have uh, inequality. You have equality, inequality. And then you, you, you reach a synthesis that's more equal, but it's not quite there. So then that becomes the new kind of bookend, right? And so this is the way, and this is a Marxist way of looking at it, but this is the way that he looked uh, at social action. So Hegel was an influence on him. I wanted to, um, to, to just, I'm not going to read this whole thing, but it is scary how prophetic this is. Uh, 
this is, a, I would say, a, a true paleoconservative, Samuel Francis. It's in Chronicles and that magazine, 1988. In an article called The Cult of Dr. King, and it is available free online, he talks about, he makes a prediction based on the MLK Day, and he says that um, it, it's a brilliant piece, I have to say. I, I can't um, really go through all of it, but he's like, listen to some of this. Like, he basically says, we're going to have to have it, we have a new national mythology when this gets passed. And it's only a matter of time, he says. It is merely a matter of time before the Confederate flag is surrendered, along with local statues of Confederate veterans and heroes, Dixie and most other memorials of antebellum civilization. Their passing uh, may not be a cause for mourning by many outside the South, but or those in the South. I mean, amazing he could see that. Dukes of Hazard is still on TV, and he's already saying this. But the same logic that compels their abandonment reaches further. The same argument that drives um, Mr. Snyder, who, who is, I believe, a... Um, remembering the context of this article was a sports a coach or something who had made a comment he shouldn't have and it got canceled um can't cancel culture happened a long time ago it started a long time ago but um the argument that drives mr snyder from his low but honest trade and pulls down a, a banner commemorating the last stand of a desperate people will demolish the obelisk and temples that memorialize the major statesmen of the american nation we forfeited the rights to revere the Constitution, the government principles and mechanisms it established, and the men who wrote it when we put Dr. King into the pantheon. The federalism, the rule of law, states rights, limits on majority rule, checks and balances, and the separation of powers that characterize the Constitution are all incompatible with the full blossoming of the egalitarian democracy that Dr. King uh, imagined. It is one thing to say that Dr. King was a great man and an American, great American. A man whose personal courage and vision, despite his human flaws, errors, and enthusiasms, challenged lesser men of both races to, and forced them to confront evils, falsehoods, and uh, in obsolete ways. However, it is quite another to say, as the U.S. government does say, in creating a legal public holiday for him, that MLK was the most important American who ever lived, at least the peer of George Washington, the father of the country, the only American in history to have his birthday made a national holiday, the man who is now first in the hearts of his countrymen. Those who don't remember, because they weren't here for it, uh, the MLK holiday replaced, I mean, now you have President's Day, but you used to celebrate Abraham Lincoln's birthday, George Washington's birthday. Now it's uh, President's Day and MLK Day. Th this is a, um, th th he was right. He was 1988. He saw 2020. He saw exactly what was happening in 2020. And based on what? Based on if you make this the holiday, this is what you're going to do. Fascinating. Absolutely. How did he know? How did he know? Because he could see what I just presented to you in the last almost two hours. He could see that Martin Luther King Jr. represented egalitarianism. And he, and he goes on, he talks about in this article that uh, he's saying, look, if you evaluate equality in this one area, why not every area? So you're talking about LGBT stuff. You're you, you wouldn't have had the Pride Month if you didn't have, first have an MLK holiday. That's what he's saying. You wouldn't have Hispanic American Month and Black History Month and, and all the other things they're trying to now put on our calendar that are basically sacred holidays. That's what a holiday means. Uh, if you didn't first have the MLK holiday. I think that that's an amazing prediction. And, and it's how did how did he get it right is really the question people need to ask. How did he know this? So uh, last slide, and then I'll take questions and we'll wrap up the podcast. Um, was MLK successful? Was he successful? Now, conservatives think, oh, he's successful. This Voting Rights, Civil Rights Act got passed. That was it. He said, though, we have the power to make the church that institution that even young people who feel temporarily separated from it can respect. We can even get them to have a new loyalty because they'll know they are on the battle line for them. Um, and they'll come to see that Jesus Christ was not a white man 
Christianity is not just a Western religion. We can make the church recapture its authentic ring. We have power to change America and give a kind of new vitality to the religion of Jesus Christ. Based on that quote, I wanted to ask that question. Um, you see that Christianity is plummeting. But there's a social justice movement that seems to be gaining gaining steam. In, in a sense, it's in the institutional phase now. They won in 2020, and it's just the policies are now being enacted. What does this all mean? Well, I think that Martin Luther King Jr.'s religion is gaining, but it's not the religion of Christianity. I think Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, his goals have been a achieved in large part, at least not his utopian scheme fully, because that can't be, but the, the tactics, the policies, what he wanted politically to be done, that stuff has all been going the way that he wanted it to be done. And the results have been terrible. And so I think a, a fair examination, a, a re-examination of the MLK is in order. Uh, is this the kind of guy we want to honor someone? We can honor courage, right? There was courage. I mean, look, the guy got stabbed. He got, and eventually he was killed. But there's courage there, no doubt. Um, he was also reacting against some things that were truly evil. Uh, there, there were uh, there were lynchings that happened. Now, I mean, Planned Parenthood could kills more probably in a week <laughs> than or uh, sometimes you know Chicago will in the course of uh, of a month have have more deaths than you know total lynchings. You know, for, well, I don't know if in a month, but in a year maybe than all all lynchings uh, that we have in history. Uh, that were um, against uh, or black people were the victims of them. And we don't even know fully all the details of all of them, but there were bad things that were happening. And so, yeah, sure. He saw some problems with some legitimate things. I, I think there's things you can look at there, but his solutions and, and the over, the over uh, and his analysis of what the problems actually were bad. <laughs> it's been bad. And I'll say this in, in closing, too, about the I have a dream speech, because that's the often the thing brought up by conservatives and evangelicals. That's like the last thing we can say. Can't we say that that's a good speech? And I've said it's there's some good things about that speech. But you, you got to think about this. If you're going to judge people based on the color of their skin, right, or the content of their character rather than the color of their skin, right? What is that really saying? It's saying that uh, you're going to it makes sense to us, I think, because you're going to treat friends that people that you have experience with, uh, not according to how they look, but according to the experience you have with them. If it's a good worker or you know, my experience with this person is they're a good worker, I'm going to pay them the same as someone who doesn't have their same skin shade, obviously. Uh, I'm going to hang out with this person. I don't care what they look like. I have, we're friends, right? We worship together. We, we uh, frequent the same businesses, live in the same place, right? All that makes absolute sense. And I think a lot of people think that that's what that means. But consider the context of the I have a dream speech. This is a political speech. This is a speech to persuade, this is in DC, to persuade the government to take political action. You can't have, it, it, when, when you're talking about groups, um, when, when you see someone, you have no experience with them, what kind of uh, judgment are you going to have? Like think about uh, if you go to a crime, an area that has a high crime, let's say, um, and you see someone coming and they happen to fit the demographic that, is I mean, we went through this after 9-11. I remember the debates over this. Uh, are, are people who look Arab, should we be should we uh, racial profile them at the airport? If you can believe that was a debate and there were conservatives saying that we should. I, I know it's hard to believe now, but that was a conservative position. It's like, well, you know, you don't need to make any everyone else wait in line. Grandmothers from the Midwest aren't blowing up planes. 
Um, but that was viewed as, well, that's not equal. You can't do that. So you, so we had to, it was ridiculous. You had to, you know, I was searched, I don't know how many times. And I was like, you know, when I was a little kid, <laughs> I was a young teenager. I was searched when going on flights. And, and, and so anyway, um, Israel, their, I mean, their, their policy at the time, I remember was, you know, they did do the profiling and it, it seemed to make sense because they didn't have shared experience with those people. It's all you see is someone coming in and it's like, well, there's a higher chance that person might be a criminal in this context, or there's people doing evil things right now in this period of time that happen to share something in common with that person. Doesn't mean that person did it. In that light, I have started to wonder about whether even the I have a dream speech, uh, that but that particular line is helpful on a political level. Um, and and so I'm I'm in the I, I'm open to being convinced either way of this, to be quite honest. But I, I'm starting because I, I used to think that this was a primary kind of conservative principle. You treat you according to the content of your character. But then I, I've been thinking about how do you know the content of someone's character? CJ Engel actually had a, a good thread on this on on uh, X not too long ago that I think is worth looking at where he kind of, he, he tries to take down that idea and say, this is really, this isn't a conservative idea. You, you know, someone's character by having experience with them, by dealing with them. You can't make a lot of political decisions or policy decisions just based, based on people groups. Um, when you, you don't have actual personal experience with them, it's more, it's more of something that appeals to personal experience. And I think Martin Luther King Jr. was good at that. Um, he was good about appealing to things that we uh, cherished at a deep level that were true, because that is a true thing. Um, I think uh, he did this spiritually too. He he really gave what Marx could not do. He was able to do by giving a spiritual kind of glow to a certain kind of of socialism. He gave a glow to it that made it uh, the social justice warrior movement we have now, which is very religious in many ways. So those are just some, some in process thoughts I have. I, I haven't landed the plane on those, uh, on that necessarily, but I'm thinking about it, about how that works. Um, it's because it's, it's taking, it, it's putting into a political category, something that's not political. And he did that with spiritual stuff. He did that with personal interaction. And that's one of the reasons he had the success, success he did. Well, I broke my rule. I'm over two hours now. It was a mega edition. Um, if uh, if anyone wants to call in or have questions, now is the time. I'm going to look through the chat and see what we got. Um, Boyd Cathy has a great collection of essays on MLK and the truth about him and conservatives that tout him. Yes, I have uh, actually I've seen those. Uh, I have been at Boyd Cathy's house and he has showed me that stuff. Um, and <laughs> statistics are racist. Yeah, everything's everything's racist if the outcome produces an inequality. And MLK would have pretty much agreed with that. Um, I miss President's Day, Beth, Betty says. Uh, I, I miss the separate President's Days, uh, Lincoln and Washington. Uh, Michael says, Abraham Lincoln said, I have always thought Dixie is one of the best tunes I have ever heard. Yeah, that, that's one of the things too. Like the Civil War, the people who fought against the South honored Southern symbols and Dixie and all that stuff. That's the, that's the thing. They honored all that stuff. Um, for $2, Earl Starbucks says Zora Neale Hurston predicted as much, didn't she? Uh, I hate to admit this. I'm not sure. I'm, I don't know if I've read that person. I feel like I should because he's like assuming I know who that person is. Um, uh, why is, okay, here's a question. Why is MLK the only individual in the U S who has his own holiday? Not even George Washington has one. Yeah. We, we, we just talked about that. 
uh, it, it, he's the, the Christ-like figure. He is the, the, the kind of like the Washington-like figure too, the father of the, of the country. Uh, for $5, Earl Starbucks says, problem of human scale applies, I think, can only judge the character of those we know, hence the need for human scale priorities. That's a really good point. And one of the things MLK helped erode with supporting uh, the war in poverty and the Voting Rights and Civil Rights Acts, it, you know, it, it violated really freedom of association, private property. Uh, it, um, it, but it also then went into these local and state, it, it run, ran roughshod over local and state municipalities and governments to enact a one size fits all kind of uh, agenda. And it didn't fit well in some, like some places, you, you, you had even uh, something as, um, I'm gonna take something that's uh, you know, fair, supported in conservative circles, in, integration, right? Um, some areas didn't really have a, much of a problem with that based on population and shared experience and a whole host of factors. Other areas had horrible problems. Like my brother said, uh, uh, New York, you know, race war in high school, it was, it was a war zone. High school was a war zone. And uh, not much has changed in, in many of those places. All right. Well, um, we're going to land the plane here. I appreciate everyone participating. This is one of those evergreen podcasts. I'm going to go back and put chapters in it for all of you, but you know, keep this one around, keep this one bookmarked, um, and, uh, and get the PowerPoint as well. Cause this is information you're just not going to get out there. And, uh, and it's one of the reasons I do this podcast. It's to, to give you good information. So God bless, uh, more coming. Bye now. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.